Hey, I want to welcome you guys here. Uh, as James said, my name is Pastor Brian, one of the pastors here. And we are uh, going through a series in the book of Revelation. So we're going to jump in right now. So grab your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 11. Um, I'm actually going to pray, and then we're going to just jump right into it this morning. We've got a lot of stuff to cover, and uh, let's do it. Father, we ask you right now that you would uh, just fall upon us in a fresh way, Lord, here now, that you would allow this time to be like worship, uh, that it would be worship as we just give attentiveness to your word, that we, as we understand it, as we seek it, Lord, that you would open our eyes and help us to see you in a way that would just transform the way that we think about you, the way that we live our lives. God, we want a glimpse of you that would change us, that would raise the affections of our hearts, that we would love you more, and that we would let go of idols and other things that we hold on to in this life that we oftentimes think are even more valuable, more important than you. Lord, the deceptiveness that we oftentimes find ourselves living under. God, we, we ask you that you would open our eyes to see you, to be tra- changed by you, to be transformed by you, that we would trust you. So we give you this time right now. Be glorified as we study your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to basically start off by saying that uh, chapter 11 that we're going to be taking a look at in the book of Revelation is uh, probably one of the most challenging, difficult chapters in the entire book of Revelation. So if you look at it this way, the book of Revelation is one of the most difficult chapters or difficult books in the entire Bible, uh, filled with all sorts of interpretive challenges uh, you might actually be able to be safe to say that chapter 11 in the book of Revelation is probably one of the most difficult chapters in the entire Bible to understand. So that being said, uh, welcome to Calvary Slow. Um, we're going to be taking a look at it here today. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we're going to be taking a look at. Um, what I want to try to do before we begin to sort of jump into it, try to understand it, uh, I've been trying to get you guys accustomed to a couple things, one of which is a phrase that we've been using called interpretive challenges or interpretive horizons, and that just simply means that in the book of Revelation, that there are a lot of different ways in which people oftentimes view the book. Uh, there are different interpretive horizons by which they view it. Uh, one of the things I've been trying to encourage you guys to consider is that the different ways, at least by which people view the book of Revelation, uh, these are people who love Jesus, they love the Bible, they trust the Bible, they believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and uh, they come up with very different perspectives on the book of Revelation. So what we're trying to say is this, is that just because other people may have different interpretations of the book of Revelation does not mean in any way that they are necessarily wrong or that they are uh, not Christians. Some are. I mean, straight up, some are. There are some that take the book of Revelation and it just sort of is another series of false doctrine in a host of false doctrine uh, that's throughout sort of a cult type of a scenario, cult type format. But what I'm trying to say is that In the history of the church, the past 2,000 years of history, there have been many, many godly people that have loved the Bible, loved God's word, that have come to very different perspectives on the book of Revelation. Um, The other thing I've been trying to communicate as we've been going through this is that the way we want to try to look at the book of Revelation is the way that we look at the rest of the Bible. And what I mean by that is the theme of the rest of the Bible is that it's a book about God. Uh, The book of Revelation is the same. It's a book about God. If what we do at the end of studying, reading, understanding, uh, trying to come to some sort of conclusion about the book of Revelation is if God is sort of in the margin, in other words, he's not the main theme, he's not the main purpose or main thrust 
uh, of the book in terms of our understanding, then we, have, we can just simply uh, assume we've not understood the book properly. God has to be central in this because it is a book about God. So that being said, one, understanding the fact that we are looking at a book that has varied uh, interpretations in it um, that should affect us in a way that we study it by keeping us humble. In other words, if we come up with an idea and we're like, I'm absolutely certain the way that I understand it is 100% correct and 2,000 years of history is wrong, there's probably a pretty good chance of there's also an arrogance uh, about that that may very well prove the fact that that your view is incorrect. Aside from that, it's just not very humble. Can you imagine looking at a guy like, say, Jonathan Edwards uh, or a guy like John Owen? These are great saints, great men of God that have lived in the past they would absolutely undo most of us in terms of their love for God and service to the body of Christ. To imagine, look at these guys in the face and saying, you're wrong, fool, how dare you? Come to such a dumb conclusion. I I personally can't see myself doing that. So my point is that I think we should gain a little bit of a humility, a little bit of a, a sense of realizing that whatever type of conviction we form about the book or about this particular chapter, we should be humble enough to just admit the fact that I could be wrong. I could be wrong, this is my best shot, this is my best approach, but I could be wrong. The other thing is, again, like I said, we want Jesus to become a scene, a center in all this. So that being said, we're going to jump in, and I'm going to show you the next slide. We're going to take a look at a couple ways in which, uh, historically, from two different vantage points, uh, chapter 11 has been understood um, from two different interpretive horizons. One is more of the literal approach. This is the way in which those would view the events in the book of Revelation as being literal, meaning we're going to look at, especially in chapter 11, uh, what's called two witnesses. These are two people that are going around preaching the gospel. And also he measures the temple. And so there are those that would look at this and say, this is literal, meaning, uh, if you haven't noticed yet, but in Israel there is no temple. So those who assume this perspective view uh, also believe at some point uh, the Jews will rebuild their temple. That prior to these events going on and taking place and happening, the temple there in the Jews in the Middle East and Jerusalem will actually be rebuilt. That's sort of the literal perspective. Um, And those who view it from a literal perspective have a very different approach as to who are these two men that you'll see. Nobody really agrees with this. So again, even within the literal perspective, there are nuances within this where people don't uniformly agree. The second of which is sort of the symbolic approach. Uh, much in terms of drawing upon symbolism throughout the book of Revelation, but also throughout the rest of the Bible, uh, these people will oftentimes view a lot of these events symbolically. Again, they're not heretics. They're not trying to uh, spiritualize the book and reduce it or bring about some sense of uh, a dismissal of it. It's not what they're trying to do but they are drawing upon uh, an idea of symbolism throughout the book. There is no doubt whatsoever in the book of Revelation, it's very heavy upon symbolism, okay? There's no doubt about that. Any, any, any uh, professor, Bible teacher, scholar, pastor will tell you that. They will all tell you there's definitely a lot of symbolism in it. Where most pastors, scholars, theologians disagree is upon what is viewed as symbolic is what is not. Some of you are like glazed over in your eyes. You're like, what does this matter anyhow? Uh, We'll keep moving on. But my point that I want to make is this, is that as you look at this, there are ways in which uh, the church uh, throughout history, 2,000 years of history, have understood this, and in a lot of ways, they vary. 
they're different. Um, okay, I want to read something to you that we've been trying to emphasize all along. The next uh, slide, you'll take a look. And it, it's the way in which the book of Revelation is viewed in terms of its literary genre. Let me give you an example. Um, if you guys have a Bible on your lap, uh, what you have is a collection of 66 books. It's actually, there's 66 books that are basically brought together with one main, uh, what we'd call like a meta-narrative. There's one main theme throughout the entire book. Even though it's written by, uh, there's 66 books written by several different authors on different continents throughout different periods of time, there's one main continuity and theme throughout the entire book. And again, it's God. It's Jesus. It's God's story of redemption. That being said, um, if, what you maybe you've noticed is that even amongst those books, uh, there's lots of different types of genre or literary genre throughout the book. For example, uh, Genesis or Exodus read like a narrative it's because they are a narrative. They read like a story. You can read it like Tom Sawyer. It's the way it's like. It's, read, it's uh, written like that. It's to be read like that. It's a narrative. Uh, it's a true narrative, a true story of the people of Israel. Um, unlike Tom Sawyer. I don't think he was real. But uh, you get the idea. It's a narrative. Uh, then you come to, like, say, Proverbs. Proverbs is not a narrative. It's not meant to be read like a narrative. If you, if you sit down and read the book of Proverbs like a narrative, it's like reading um, an encyclopedia, right? It seems all, I mean, have you ever sat down and you're like, I'm just going to read the encyclopedia just like I read Tom Sawyer? You have a really hard time. It's not meant to be read like that. There's different sections in the book that are meant to be looked at in themes and concepts and ideas. Um, the book of Song of Solomon is poetic. It's poetry. It's a type of genre. In other words, if you take uh, the book of Song of Solomon, literally, it would be kind of messed up. It's not meant to be necessarily literally. You know, he talks, I mean, I'm not going to go there, but you get the idea. There's lots of descriptions in there, symbolism, uh, symbolism uh, that if you, if you take it literally, you just end up with some really false conclusions in it. The book of Revelation, according to most scholars, uh, is that it was written in a literary genre called apocalyptic. This was a type of literary genre that was very popular about 200 years before Christ and about 200 years after Christ. So about a series of about 100 or about 500 years, there was this very popular form of literary genre called apocalyptic. There are books that were written back in the day. In fact, some are even within what we call the apocrypha, meaning we don't view them as part of the uh, canon of scripture. One book called the book of Enoch is written in sort of this apocalyptic type format. And you're like, what's apocalyptic? Well, I'll just read kind of what, what this one guy says, Dr. Richard. I have no idea what his last name is. Here's what it says. Apocalyptic literature is written in symbolism, poetry, and imageries, as well as an Old Testament prophecy style. Uh, again, it combines a lot of these elements. This is all woven as a tapestry to describe literal events. So there are literal things to be viewed in it, but it's written sort of a prophetic, imaginary, or full of images and poetic type nature. It says, but with the twist of language, with symbols uh, that are cataclysmic, words that are exaggerated, and metaphors uh, that may have been lost to 21st century person. All right. Uh, such, images, uh, such imagery is often used for God's judgment and the end of the days. These forms of language or genre are often combinations of narrative or story form and prose, poetic, written in vivid imagery and rhythmical phrases that are intended to express a deeper but not necessarily hidden meaning that a regular word would not convey. So all that basically means is this. There's a lot of symbolism that are meant to convey certain truths. I'll give you one of the most prime examples of this. When you read, uh, when John sees his heavenly throne, and he's, he hears about the line of the tribe of Judah, 
again, you think of a lion, you think of this massive, ferocious uh, animal, the king of all beasts. John turns around to take a look, catch a glimpse of the lion of the tribe of Judah, and what does he end up seeing? He ends up seeing a lamb that's slain. So John sees a lamb. So, lit, so here's a question, in literal form, is there on the throne of God a lamb? No. No. There's not like a little sheep on the throne of God. But John sees Jesus as a lamb. For example, is the Holy Spirit literally a dove? No. But he comes down like a dove. You see what I'm saying? The Bible is full of imagery. And so if you're not, in certain cases, meant to take these things as literal forms. The idea of a lamb speaks of sacrifice. God has this whole theme in the Old Testament of a lamb being a sacrificial element. A lamb dies for the remission of sin. A lamb is what's meant to cover by its blood. Uh, the sins of the people, for example, like in the Passover. So you see these images, um, and, and they're, they're meant to trigger something else in your mind. Let me throw out another thing. I've been saying this all along. Uh, John, not just in the book of Revelation, but also in the Gospel of John, he writes in what I would describe as hyperlinks. I mentioned this to you guys before. Uh, if you're surfing a website and you come across this little blue uh, lettering that has got an underline underneath it, that's a hyperlink. Now that... If you click it, what does it do? It takes you to a whole other web page. And that whole other web page was literally um, reduced into that little hypertext. Does that make sense? That hypertext is not actually or literally that other web page. It points to that other web page. You guys following me? John writes like that all the time. And you'll see that throughout this passage. John writes with all sorts of hypertext all sorts of hyperlinks with the uh, determined purpose to get our minds to be thinking in, in a very broad terms about the rest of the book, the rest of the Bible, not just the book of Revelation, but the rest of the Bible. God's moving, he's writing, he's speaking, and there's a lot of colorful images and pictures that John uses. So again, to try to understand this type of literary genre, to just simply reduce it all to a literal nature would mean to miss a lot of, uh, and misunderstand. Let me try to put it this way, maybe in a modernized perspective. Uh, for example, the word bull. All right, a bull is a large animal you see out in the field. You don't want to mess with a bull. Now, if you see some guy, he's kind of brutish and he's a jerk, you're like, dude, you like a bull. If someone says something to you and you're like, I don't think that's true, you say, that's bull. The word bull has different con- uh, connotations depending upon the context you put it in. In the book of Revelation, you got to try to look at it that way. There are different ways in which certain words are used and images and pictures are used to try to put them into the place. All right, one other example. If, let's say, 300 years from now, humanity's still around on this planet, and someone, let's say, uh, you know, all of Beatrix Potter's works are gone, and someone uncovers them, and they pick up a book on Peter Rabbit, and they start flipping through like, oh my gosh. 500 years ago, they had rabbits that talked. This is trippy. I, I can't believe it. You know, this seems silly, right? Because it's not, you know, Beatrix Potter would rebuke you. Be like, that's not how it's to be read. It's not meant to be a narrative story. And you're reading like literalism into a story. It's just a story, right? And the same as, I, 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 I sometimes wonder with regard to the book of Revelation. If it's written in sort of this type of, literary genre, there are definitely literal elements there, but there is also a lot of symbolic element there. So all that to be said, 
Does Pastor Brian know everything about the book of Revelation? No. That's one of my, my whole point is I really don't. I'm trying my best. And one of the reasons why I'm sharing this with you is because I could just simply say, look, there's one way to look at the book of Revelation. It's my way. And everybody else is wrong. But here's the reality. A lot of you, because we do have very high turnover in this church, it becomes very evident that people will leave. They will go to other places. They will find out that there are other ways by which Christians, God-fearing believers throughout centuries, have viewed the book of Revelation. And in their mind, they'll think, wow, Pastor Brian told me only one way to view the book of Revelation, and it was the only way to view the book of Revelation. I've discovered that there's other ways by which to view the book of Revelation. Why did Pastor Brian lie to me? And I don't want to lie to anybody. I don't want to deceive anybody. I want you to be aware that this book is definitely a very difficult book to interpret. And Christians throughout centuries have been doing their best, who love God, to try to understand this book. My main point is to say this. Let it all, always take you back to Jesus. That's it. Let it take you back to Jesus. If it takes you in a direction, your interpretation of this book, to a direction where now you're arrogant, you're prideful, you got all the answers, you're ready to go fight with people, and somehow Jesus is just sort of in the margin, I, I honestly just have to say, I think you missed the book. You missed its intention. You missed the main heartbeat of the book, which is to bring us to an understanding, a revelation of God. So, form convictions, yes, but be humble in those convictions. Realize those convictions have probably been shared by hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians throughout the ages, and many Christians throughout the ages have had varying degrees of understanding and ways by which they interpret it. Does that all make sense? You guys all good? Let's jump in. Revelation chapter uh, 11, verse 1, it says this, and then I was given a measuring rod. And a staff, and I was told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So John is basically told to measure this temple. And again, if you take a literal perspective, this is uh, a belief that one day the temple of God or the temple will be rebuilt in Israel. Now, I would say this. It is a very, to me, an interesting and perhaps even persuasive type of an argument that up until 50 years ago, the thought of the Jewish state even rebuilding a temple seemed impossible. Israel didn't exist. It was not a nation. It is very interesting today that now they are a nation, and there are actually those within the nation of Israel that really want to build the temple again. So it's possible it's talking about that. So again, from a literal perspective, that does seem like a compelling argument. Even though there may be a lot of good ideas that might arise or emerge within terms of the symbolic view of this. The symbolic approach would view the temple not just so much as a literal building, but view it as sort of God's people. And they would take more of the approach that uh, the symbolism that's portrayed here in describing the temple of God is actually a reference to the church, which Paul actually says is the temple of God. Your body is the temple of God. If you love Jesus and he's your savior, you form the body of Christ or the temple of God. You're, you're a house of worship. That's the idea. And so some, depending upon the way that you would view it in terms of literal or symbolic, it's going to affect the way that you see this. So regardless of that, John is asked to measure this. Now, measuring the temple is not something that's uh, unique just to the book of Revelation chapter 11. In fact, there are other occasions in the Old Testament that uh, men were actually ordered to do this uh, in two different ways. One, uh, there were occasions in which the temple was to be measured to mark it off for destruction, kind of like a judgment. This is what's seen in the book of uh, Ezekiel. 
Chapter 40, if you're uh, writing notes, and that's around chapter 40 is where Ezekiel is uh, walking around uh, with his angel, and his angel is basically uh, measuring the whole entire temple and the outer court and all these other things, and it's being marked off for judgment, basically. Um, but also it's to be marked off, uh, the temple is, at other occasions, measured for restoration. For example, one of the books, Old Testament, called Zechariah, a very small book, but it describes a time when God is basically marking off uh, space and property to uh, establish his temple. And the idea behind this, I think, uh, is to basically say, it belongs to me. The temple belongs to me. So in one case, it's God's description of judgment. In another case, it's God's description of uh, a coming uh, your protection, that God's saying, this belongs to me. This is my property. One, it's like a sizing up, sizing you up, sizing up the temple, and I'm going to bring judgment the other ways. God's saying, um, I'll protect. Okay, it goes on, verse 2, and it says, but do not measure the outer court, but leave it at the outside, given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, uh, clothed in sackcloth. Couple things here, real quick. He describes the identity of these two witnesses, and he says that these two guys are going to prophesy for 1260 days. Uh, you'll see this number appear several times in the book of Revelation 1260 days. Uh, another, uh, it might say 42 months, which is the exact same. If you, you know, take 42 divide, or multiply it by 30, a Jewish calendar uh, month is 30 days in a month. Uh, you get that same figure, or three and a half years. So uh, most scholars, uh, whether symbolic or literal, oftentimes uh, believe that this passage is a hyperlink back to the book of Daniel, where Daniel talks about this final uh, week of years, or seven years, seven and a half is three and a half. So you cut seven and a half, you get three and a half. And most, a lot of, a lot of people believe that this is sort of like a period of great tribulation, the great tribulation that will come at some point yet in the future. And so it would seem as if John's saying that there are these two guys, They'll speak, proclaim, preach. If it's literal, some literal people will try to look at this and say, well, we know the identity of who these people are. This is our best idea. Uh, symbolic people would look at this and say, we think that this symbolizes the church, the church's prophetic call, which was to go out and be a witness. Jesus describes his church as being witnesses. You're like, what does that mean? Uh, witness basically is a phrase that references back to Deuteronomy, where God basically says, out of the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses, a thing will be established. Uh, Jesus sent out his disciples, two by two. Why? Because it takes two in the culture of Israel to determine a thing. If one dude shows up at your door, he's like, hey, I believe this is true, you can shut the door in his face and say, I don't believe you, because it's your word against my word. But if you've got two guys showing up at your door, and they're like, look, we're eyewitnesses, we lived it, we saw it, we felt it, we tasted it, and it's true that there's the reality that you, it's two against one now. And it is something in which that culture would view the thing will be established. Well, these guys go around. Again, if it's uh, the symbolic, some people view it as the church doing their job, preaching the gospel, and then they ultimately will be killed. If it's the literal, these are two people. Uh, most within this camp, uh, have, they just, there's a lot of discrepancy in terms of who they think these two people are. Uh, we'll read through some of these and... Uh, what you'll see is you'll see kind of a lot of hyperlinks in this passage here. Verse 4, he says, Then these are the two olive trees, the two lampstands, that stand before the Lord in the earth, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes the foes. If anyone would harm them, uh, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And then he, they will have power to shut up the sky so that no rain may fall 
uh, during the days of the prophesying, they have power over waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as, as often as they desire. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that uh, rises from the bottomless pit will make war with them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half Days, some of the peoples of the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and they will refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell in the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because those two prophets had been, torment, had been a torment to those who dwell upon the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of the life of God had entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon all those who saw them. And they heard the loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And when they went up into heaven, the cloud and the enemies watched them. And at the hour, uh, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the second woe that has passed. Behold, the third woe is about to happen. I want you to notice at least a couple things sort of in summary about these people that I think is kind of interesting. Again, there's lots of Old Testament, uh, uh, you know, comments going on in this passage you guys pick up on any of them for example talks about you know they'll call fire down from heaven who's that reference elijah right it says that they also have the power to bring about these plagues who had power to bring plagues moses right um you read about them being dead for three and a half days or three days who does that probably reference Something about Jesus dying, right? And then rising again. They rose again from the dead. God breathed life into them. They rise back up. Obviously, again, pointing back to the resurrection of Christ. And then they were taken up in the clouds. Jesus ascended into heaven. You see what I'm saying? There's a lot of imagery that's going on here, pointing back or harkening back or like these little hyperlinks going back to Old Testament passages or even New Testament uh, allusions that are there. Here's a couple examples. One, these guys were given power and authority. Just kind of a thumbnail of who these guys were. Um, it says that they, you know, there's another thing. is that they have these powers that are like Moses and like Elijah, calling fire down, creating plagues. Um, it says that the beast will ultimately kill them. The beast comes from the bottomless pit. We'll find out in the next few weeks that the beast probably is some sort of an allusion to uh, Satan, who has given power to this beast, some sort of embodiment of evil or a uh, picture of evil that comes sourced out of hell. And he's got the power to kill these guys. Um, and then once they die, everyone's stoked. I mean, everyone throws a party. They're super happy that these guys are gone. Um, the point I think that's going on here to some degree is that the testimony that these guys bore is not received by everybody. So if you're a Christian and at work, you always kind of scratch your head. You're like, why does everybody hate me? I'm quiet, I do my job, I come in on time, I leave on time, uh, I'm nice to people, I'm, I'm just, I, just, I just do my work and I try to do it as unto God, but I still feel as if a lot of people hate me. Or maybe you go home for Christmas and you're like, you're not the obnoxious kid, and you just find yourself always at odds with other people. They just hate you. There's other people that just kind of look at you, they just have sort of this chip on their shoulder against you, you know what it is. I mean, some of you might be because you're just obnoxious, all right? That's my problem. Like, people don't like me because I'm obnoxious. And the reality is that, I mean, some of us, you're just like, you're, you're not obnoxious. You're a kind person. You love Jesus. You do your very best to just show kindness and love to other people. And yet people still dislike you. And you're like, I don't get it. Well, the reality is, is this, is that if you love Jesus, if you represent Christ, 
there are people that hate Jesus. They just do not love Christ. And you represent Christ to them. The way that you live, the fact that you don't necessarily maybe laugh to some of the certain jokes that they're talking about. You don't talk about the same types of things that they talk about. You don't engage in the same types of things that they engage about. You live on a different level, not, because, not necessarily because your head's in the clouds, but because you just have a different value system. And they hate you because of that. And the reality is, is that maybe when you're gone, I mean, this may be a wake-up call for some of you, but you're like, when you're gone, they're stoked. Like, I'm glad that person's gone. Because you represent everything that they don't like, that they don't love. And the reality is, is that's the way that the world is. Is that there's this tendency within the culture to rebel and resist against anything that looks like God. This is one of the reasons why Jesus said, Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So when you, as a Christian, let's say, come into a room and you're shining like a light, you're obnoxious to people. You can actually be the nicest person in the world, but you're still obnoxious to people. They still resent you. And that's what ends up happening with these two witnesses. They're killed. Everybody parties. Finally, it describes him as being resurrected, like Jesus. And then he finishes his whole little section in verse 14. He says, this is a second woe. So... Now we kind of move on into the very last section of the chapter. In verse 13, he says this. You're like, there's a lot more details in there, right? Yeah, I know. There's a lot more details in there. But here's what I really want to get at here. Because everything shifts again and now begins to look back into heaven. I love how the book of Revelation goes through these seasons of emphasizing uh, different types of cataclysmic events, things that are just bad, things that can be really difficult, but I love how the fact that it's punctuated with these moments of, of glimpses of heaven where God just shows himself and says, don't forget, don't get lost in all of the apocalyptic language. Don't get lost in all of the graphic details of difficulty and hardship and trial and devastation. Make sure that you are anchored. It's almost as if God's saying, anchored in what's ultimate. In this case, what's ultimate is God's throne. So here's what it says. Verse 15, And the seventh angel blew the trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, Now I want you to listen to this, okay? Because here's the reality. What you're going to read right now, just a second, is a statement that will be shouted. It says, many voices in heaven. John listens and he hears, and it says, many voices in heaven declare this. But I wanted, what I want you to consider is that for maybe some of you, have, maybe this is the first time you've ever read in the book of Revelation, this may be the first time you've ever heard this. Others of you that may have read this may have just simply read over this particular passage and just kind of skipped over it. What I want you to understand is that what you're reading right now is something that will one day happen. It will be proclaimed and announced, and all of heaven will respond. All of heaven. That means all of us. If you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, if you've been blood-bought, meaning you have a relationship with Christ, when you hear this sounded, your heart will be affected in the same way as those in this passage are affected. So John notices, and he hears the seventh angel blow his trumpet. And it says, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. John hears this, this sound, this, these voices sort of in unity, proclaiming and announcing. It's almost like this final announcement. In fact, I would almost go so far as to say that what's about, or what is announced here, is almost, it's probably safe to say, the culmination of all of the prayers of all of the saints throughout all history, asking God to move. 
anytime you as a Christian, you've asked God, God, would you show up? God, would you move? God, would you bring justice? God, would you bring some sort of sense of, of, of movement and power upon this planet for anything that's going on in your life, whether it be because you were wrong and you've asked God, God, show up, or maybe you were praying for somebody else that's been wrong. God, would you just show up and show mercy and justice, pleading on their behalf? What I'm trying to say is that that prayer, those prayers will ultimately and finally be summarized when this voice thunders from heaven, shouts out, and says, this earth has become the kingdom of our God. I want you to think about that. I want you to just to consider that, to meditate upon that. We live in a day and age that we try hard. We've done the best that we can to appoint leaders. But even the leaders we appoint, they disappoint. Even the leaders we have don't and are not able to fulfill promises that they claim to fulfill and accomplish. In fact, even what ends up happening is there's always this propensity whereby leaders can fail and fumble and fall. This is one of the reasons why in the world in which we live, like for example, even in our government system, you have several different branches of government simply to keep the balance, to keep order, so that if one area goes awry, there's a couple other areas to help bring it back into balance. The reality is, is the net the the net total of everything that ends up happening is that we are not capable of ruling ourselves properly in spite of the best leaders that we could ever have. We still have poverty. We still have people being taken advantage of. We still don't have people being properly cared for and tended to and loved. And it's really, to be really frank, not one person can be blamed or credited for it. We We live in a culture, in a society, in a world that's broken One of the reasons why this world in which we live in is cursed, the way it describes it in the book of Genesis, is that it's meant to be a perpetual reminder to us that everything has been affected and marred because of sin. And when we see the things in this world broken, it's meant to cause us to cry out for salvation. It's meant to cause us to cry out for help. Instead, what ends up happening is we stubbornly, and arrogantly set out in our own self-determination to say, I will fix it on my own. And nobody can really do that. We end up pushing God aside. We belittle God by our activity. At the very least, we don't give praise and thanksgiving to God like he deserves. At the very worst, we end up worshiping ourselves as gods. And God's creation as gods. And all of God's good things that he's ever created for us, meant to give glory to him, we worship and esteem and exalt those things higher than God himself. All the while saying, we don't really believe that God even exists. And the reality is that the, 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 the total of all of this in the world in which we live is brokenness and decay. Can you imagine... I mean, if we truly believe and live with the understanding that our God is good, can you imagine what that truth will do to affect us if we can just somehow live in light of the reality that one day the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our God, or become the kingdom of our God. Our God will one day finally at some point set up his eternal kingdom, his eternal reign, his just goodness 
upon this planet and he will reign as king of kings and lord of lords. He will establish justice. He will take care of widows that have never been taken care of. He will take care of orphans that we desire as best as we can to tend to and take care of the needs. God will do all of this. And that is a great promise that literally comes out of this book. It's an amazing reality that will one day happen. I want you to take a look at the response. Immediately as they hear this, it says in verse 16, and then the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God, they fell on their faces and they worshiped God. The immediate response of those hearing this, those sort of in earshot of this, they realize it's happening. And their immediate response is to get off of their thrones, to get off of those places where they rule and reign. They fall face down before God, and they worship God. They love God. They serve God because of what God has done and because of what God is doing. I want you to notice at least two things. They respond. Take a look at the next slide. They respond in at least two ways. One, they respond uh, in terms of who God is. Notice again how it says this. We, it says this. It says, we give thanks to you, our Lord God Almighty, they give thanks to God because he's almighty, means he has all power, all ability, all strength. There's nothing lacking in God. It's intrinsic in who he is. Even the best of leaders in this world don't even have almighty power. Nobody's almighty, but God has almighty power. It's interesting, in between services, I had a gal come up to me. She goes, you know what, Make, you know, remember it, when you're talking, it reminded me of Handel's Messiah. She says, you know that song was actually written for a king? And when they sang the song, the king, the king of England, actually stood up in honor of the king of kings. When they came to that part where it's like king of kings and lord of lords, you want me to sing it for you? Opera style? No. And at that point, everybody stands up. And it was as if the king of England was basically saying, as strong and as powerful and as mighty as I am, I'm nothing compared to the king of kings and lord of lords. And the reality is, is these people worship God because they understand that God himself is almighty. It's all power. And then they worship him in terms of who he is, who he, who he is, who he was. And notice other portions it'll say, and who is yet to come or who is to come. He doesn't say that here because he's come. It's beginning to happen. It's taking place. Jesus is coming. He's establishing his work. And it's beginning to take place. And they worship him for that. They also worship him for what he's doing. Notice what it says. They worship him because he's begun to reign. I love this. He's beginning to establish his reign upon the nations. God himself is actually setting this up. It's his power which is establishing this, which is uh, uh, bringing this about. God has all power. We say he's omnipotent. Big theological word for you, for free. And the point is that God has all power to do whatever he wants, and it's through God's power that he establishes his reign. The second thing that we notice is we also see that uh, the dead will be judged. Take a look. It says, in, uh, who is, who was, in verse uh, 18, actually just before that, he says, but you have taken your great power and you begun to reign. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time of the dead to be judged. So there will come a point that God will judge. Now I know this is one of those topics that pastors aren't supposed to talk about. It makes churches not grow. Yeah, I know, that's what all the books say. But the point of the matter is this. 
mean, my, you know, to be really frank with you guys, this is one of those passages where, you know, even pastors that believe this stuff, this is like their opportunity to really try to sink their teeth in and to grind this home, and to yell at you and to manipulate you and force you to pray some sort of prayer. My point I just want to simply bring down is this. The reality is just simply this, that God will one day come, just as it says here, Jesus will begin his rule and reign, just as it says here, and part of Jesus' rule and reign will involve judgment of his enemies. It will involve judgment of his enemies. You say, well, that seems a little scandalous that God would destroy and remove his enemies. Really? Is it really that far-fetched? I mean, I just want you to think with me for just a second here. Is it that far-fetched? I mean, can you imagine having Thanksgiving at your house? And you have a big meal, you invite family members. But let's say if there's a family member that hates you, that hates your kids. He's a threat to your wife. He's a threat to your kids. Let's say he's a pedophile. He's got issues in his life that if you let him into your house, he will destroy you, he will ruin you, he hates you, he doesn't want to live according to any of your rules. You know he's not safe around your kids. You're absolutely certain he's not safe around your wife. Would you let him in? You have the right to say no. And it's not just because you got problems, it's because you hate me, you belittle me, you treat me with, belli- uh, with, with belligerence, you don't like my rule, you don't like my reign. And what I want you to understand is that God's rule, God's reign, will be much the same way. Those who love God, those who love Jesus, those who are respondent to what he's done on the cross, and call him Savior, and love him for what he's done, we will be as a family together. This is absolutely amazing because the reality is, is all of us are very different. We've got even issues in simple things that we struggle with. This is one of the mysteries of salvation. I love what Luther once described it. He says, uh, basically at the same time, I am both justified and a sinner. That means we still sin and yet at the same time, we have been made right with God. This is not about perfect people all hanging out and having church for eternity. This is about sons and daughters that have rebelled against their father, but have been made right because of the sacrifice the father has taken care of through his son. That God's wrath has come. There's two ways in which God's wrath has come or will come. The first of which is God's wrath came upon his son Jesus. Those who love the son have been passed over. The wrath of God has been Uh, propitiated is a big word, meaning it's been satisfied. God is no longer your enemy. He's no longer frustrated because of our sin. His, His wrath has been taken out upon his son, and we are part of that. We are recipients of that. Or if you are the type of person that refuses Christ, that hates Jesus, that continues to walk in darkness, continues to love sin and idols and other things more than God, then please understand the reality is this, is that God's wrath is yet to come. And God's wrath will come upon all those who despise his son, all those who hate his rule, all those who do not have any fear whatsoever in their hearts of this God. And God will say, this earth now belongs to me. My people, my children who've been redeemed by my name, sinful though they are, they're made just. They will rule and reign on this earth 
and we will establish a new heavens and a new earth, and good and righteousness and justice will prevail, and evil will no longer be in it. Those who hate me, those who despise me, those who hate my sons and my daughters, they will be cast out. And that's the idea that Jesus says, my wrath will come upon those who despise me. Please understand, this is serious, serious stuff. I'm not making it up. I'm just trying to read it for what it is. He finishes this little section, and he also describes uh, this, going forward one more, real quick on the slide. He says, he will also uh, give to his servants reward. I want you to listen to how he describes this. And he says, and then for the rewarding of the saints, the prophets, and his servants, and all those who fear his name, both small and great. You know, there will come a day when Jesus will reward his children. I want you to just for a moment try to fathom this. All of us by nature, the Bible says, are children of wrath. We have shunned God. We have basically by our actions, by our activity, given God the middle finger. That's the way that we live. That's the way that we act. That's the way that we think about God. We have preferred other things over God. And yet God in his grace is not obligated to us. We don't deserve it. But God in his grace lovingly, graciously comes and takes us and brings us in. We're given a free gift, salvation. God has changed us. And on top of that, if that were enough, that would be enough to keep us worshiping for eternity. But on top of that, we will get to heaven. We will see Jesus face to face, and God will also reward us. We who deserve sin, we deserve death and judgment. God graciously, mercifully gives us life and will also reward us on top of that. And we finish with this. And then he goes on to say, and he will destroy the destroyers of the earth. And finally, he talks about in verse 19, God's temple in the heaven was opened and the ark of the covenant was seen within the temple and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of lightning, earthquake, and heavy hail. I think this is a way of summarizing saying, I will remember my covenant forever my people. The ark spoke of the covenant, the relationship that God made with his people. It's an interesting metaphor that God chooses, but I think the point is to say that these people that will worship Christ, immediately when they begin to hear, and they're reminded of the fact that Christ will rule and reign upon this planet, he will set up his kingdom, is they will worship God. They will respond in love. That's what we're going to do now. We're going to respond. We love Jesus. We're going to respond to him. We're going to sing to him. We're going to have the worship team come on up right now. And one of the, several of the things that we'll do is we will respond by singing. It's one of the things that it's done a lot in heaven. That's one of the reasons why we do it here is because it's done in heaven. We sing. When we sing, some of us, you know, we raise our hands. We shout joyfully. We get on our hands and our knees just like they did in heaven. And we worship God. And we consider him who's done so many great things for us. We're going to also respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. We give because God is generous in his gift to us. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. If you want to give, give out of joyfulness and love for what God's doing in your heart and for the fact that you love what God's doing in this church. We're going to respond by partaking of communion. We have communion elements in the back. Please feel free to enjoy that. If you're not a Christian, hopefully one of the best ways for you to respond is by confessing your sin confessing what you've done to Christ, calling upon him, 
knowing that, trust in what Jesus has done for you and that he's absorbed already your judgment. This to me is one of the most tragic realities what will perhaps one day happen is people will be judged and they don't really need to be judged because judgment has already come upon the Son. So my encouragement to you is if you're not a Christian, for you to trust in Christ, to love Christ. I'm going to pray We'll respond in these ways. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you've done. And God, right now we want to respond to you. We want to sing to you. We want to give to you our tithes, our offerings, our gifts, our songs. And God, we also want to confess to you areas of sin in our lives, areas of rebellion, things in which we have not loved you, worshipped you the way we ought. We want to confess those things to you. And God, we want to at the same time express our deepest affection and love praise for what you've done for us and what you will do. That, Lord, one day, the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of our God. We have so much to celebrate, so much to rejoice in you because of it.